Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Merry holiday, Miss Wanaconic. Whatever holidays, it's the time of the year where people celebrate things. And maybe this year people feel a little bit less like celebrating because it has been a dark one and the year before it was also pretty dark and next year it is not <laughs> going to be less dark uh, but uh, we have another Behind the Bastards Christmas special which uh, is is you know a, a bit of a tradition here well this is now the second time we've done it so now it's officially a tradition uh, where we break with our tradition of telling stories about the worst people in all of history and instead highlight a hero Last year, uh, I told everybody the story of Raoul Wallenberg, a man who risked his life and spent the entirety of his considerable privilege saving lives from the Nazis. And this year, we're going to talk about another hero of mine, John Effen Brown. And today, my guest is my producer, Sophie! Airhorn, Airhorn, Airhorn. Hello. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Robert. How are you doing? I'm well. How's your, how's your holiday going? It's holidaying, you know. Yeah, you uh, you you do you enjoy this time of year? Are you a big Christmaser? No, no. I mean, I don't dislike this time of year, but I'm not like, yay. What's your What's your favorite holiday? Easter. Well, that's the wrong answer. Um, <laughs> but you're Dale just to gave have... me the funniest look, but it is actually true that Easter is my favorite holiday. Such a shit holiday, <laughs> other than the Cadbury cream eggs, which are objectively great. Like, candy's the best for Easter. It is the best for Easter, and that's a serious uh, injustice, because the pies are best for Christmas. That's true. Um, so, Sophie. Mm. So, Fee. So, Fee. Hmm. So, Fee. Um, here we are. What do you know 
about John Brown? Uh, for the sake of this podcast, I know nothing. You know nothing. You don't know any. The name doesn't ring any bells to you. Let's just let's just no. Really? Okay. Well, let's do this. Uh, yeah, he's probably somebody people heard about in high school for like a paragraph or two. He's usually like right before the Civil War starts. You'll mm-hmm. get a couple paragraphs. They're like one of those little insert boxes about John Brown and the the raid on Harper's Ferry. Right. Um, and he's a he's an interesting guy because like Wallenberg, he gave his life fighting against the greatest evil of his age. Um, but Waldenberg was kind of like almost a saint, like in terms of his personal character and conduct. Um, and John Brown was a terrorist. Um, and also, it doesn't mean he was like wrong. An angry elf. Well, he grew up in the like early 1800s when life was terrible. So, like, he probably looked that way by the time he was fucking 20. But yeah, he he looks rough. Wow. <laughs> like, the only pictures you that exist of him, his skin looks like tanned leather. Um, like he looks like he's been getting punched in the face by sandpaper for a living for fifty-seven years. Um, yes, he's hard life. <laughs> so, while I was researching this episode, I came across an article by the Smithsonian Magazine. It includes a quote from Dennis Fry, uh, the National Park Service's chief historian for Harper's Ferry, where John Brown conducted his famous raid to try to liberate. Uh, the slaves of the American South. Uh, And Fry said this about John. Uh, Americans do not deliberate about John Brown. They feel him. He is still alive today in the American soul. He represents something for each of us, but none of us is in agreement about what he means. And that's really interesting to me because John Brown's legacy has been cited by bombers of abortion clinics and most recently by Willem Van Spronson, who assaulted an ICE facility in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and died attempting to destroy their buses to stop them from being able to deport people. Um, So... John Brown is the kind of guy who speaks to a lot of people. I was going to say a wide range of audience. Yeah, literally the widest range possible if you're looking at folks who are influenced by this guy. Um, so this is a more complicated story, I think, morally than the story of Wallenberg. But I right. do think John Brown was still a hero. Um, so we'll, we'll see how you feel at the end of this tale. John Brown was born on May 9th, 1800, to Owen Brown and Ruth Mills in the town of Torrington, Connecticut. Well, there you go. He might Hi, be Owen. the descendant of John Brown. Yeah. Mm. Uh, John was the fourth of eight children between his father and his father's first wife. Uh, John's namesake was Captain John Brown, a farmer and Revolutionary War hero who'd briefly fought against the British in 1776 before dying of dysentery in a New York barn. Uh, the, the I guess that qualifies you as a hero. <laughs> when Captain Brown died, he left behind a pregnant widow and ten children, including Owen Brown, who wrote that after his father's death, we lost our crops and then our cattle and so became poor. Uh, so John Brown does not come from money, unlike Wallenberg. Um, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's from a family that's been poor since his dad was little. Um, now, the Browns were strict Calvinists. And in brief, Calvinism... Yeah, do you know what Calvinism is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe Calvinism, Sophie? It's like it's like super strict Christianity, for lack yeah, of a better yeah. phrasing. It's yeah, like inten- really it's intense. It's like they like really, yeah. really believed in like the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And they're like they're kind of a lot in a lot of ways the predecessors of a lot of today's evangelicals. Right. Um, cause they, they, they believe that you can't do good things to save your soul from, from hell. 
Um, like it's totally God's choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them believe that like where you go end up after death is like predicted or is like decided before your birth. Mm. Um, so they were, they were pretty hardcore fundamentalists. I don't like that. Um, yeah, it's not great. It's not my, my particular choice of religion, but it was a pretty common one at that point in time. And in the pl- part of America where Brown grew up, that was a bad time. Um, it's like, Hey, yeah, it wasn't a great time. Hey, I wouldn't be have a good person, but also you're going to hell. But that's also, bad. yeah, it doesn't matter what yeah. you do. Yeah. That's very yeah, depressing. I, yeah. When you read religious tracts from people back then, the the kind of God they worship seems more like a terrorist to me, but, um, and not the good kind of terrorist, which we're talking about today. Not, not, not so, this kind of a terrorist, like a, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, some of what we know about John's early life comes from a note he wrote a 12-year-old uh, who was the son of one of the men who financed his crusade against slavery. Uh, so he like wrote this summary of his life for the kid of one of the people who was backing this guerrilla I'm, war that he I wound mean, up fighting as an adult. I mean, that's my source. Yeah, yeah. That's my source yeah. of choice. Yeah, I write notes to a lot of 12-year-olds just I mean, in case just I wind so up creepy. waging a guerrilla war. It, it does. It sounds creepier than it was. Great. Um yeah, it wasn't really creepy, but it does sound creepy when you sum it up that way. Cool, cool. Um, and, and in that note, here's how Brown described his childhood. Uh, and he wrote this in the third person because he's a weirdo. <laughs> I cannot tell you of anything in the first four years of John's life worth mentioning, save that at an early age, he was tempted by three large brass pins belonging to a girl who lived in the family and stole them. In this, he was detected by his mother and after having a full day to think of the wrong, received from her a thorough whipping. So... Is, is what John Brown thinks is important to tell an, a little kid about his childhood. He's like, hey, um, kid, back in my day, he's I that stole guy. some pins. <laughs> yeah. He's well, literally he's like, that guy. It's he's, so weird. Punishment is important to him. He's like, listen, um, listen, you think you had it bad? Whipping. All I'm going to say, whipping. Oh, I bet that kid got whipped too. Oh, I, I think they were whipping kids all throughout the 1800s. But on is it wasn't like that normal at that that I yes, like, yeah, yes. This, yeah, for sure, right? Yeah, the the abuse like obviously like we can say that what happened to John Brown as a kid was abuse um by for our sure, standards, for but sure. like at the time it was pretty much just how kids grew up, you yeah. know, you give them some whippings. They were um, they were harder times, Robert. Yeah. And it was also a time in which the most common reaction to gut-wrenching poverty was to pack up everything you owned and just move vaguely west. Uh, and in Brown's case, this took his family to Ohio, which <laughs> that, at that point was called... very funny. It sounds like half my relatives are like, you know what? It's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It sounds like my parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of the defining emotion of this country. Uh, I'm not it's... happy here. What if I had Westmore? <laughs> You're like, all right, I'm I'm now I'm in San Diego. What do I do? It's like I guess the sea. Yeah, if you're miserable in San Diego, you just got to walk into the ocean. Yeah. yeah, don't walk into the ocean. Don't well, do that. Maybe don't do that unless you're like walking, but like you're still ne- you can still breathe. Yeah, we don't we yeah. don't we don't control drowning. Um, continue. Yeah, so uh, Brown's family moved to Ohio when he was a wee lad, uh, which at that point was not called Ohio. It was called the Western Reserve by Connecticutians. I don't know what you call people from Connecticut, and I refuse to learn. Um, so, Ew. Owen, yeah, no, screw That's them. Horrible. Um, well, they should have lived in a state that should have gone west <laughs> with a better name. Yeah, yeah like fucking uh, Iowa's right there. Uh, Rhode Island, all fine names. Yeah, 
Now, Owen Brown considered this move west to be an act of religious devotion as well as practicality, uh, part of a glorious attempt to extend the benefits of Christendom further into what he saw as an untamed continent. John Brown, however, loved the wild nature of the Western Reserve. He wrote with excitement that it was a, quote, wilderness filled with wild beasts and Indians. Now, unlike many of his contemporaries, Brown and his family were on friendly terms with the natives. One of John's friends was a Native American boy who gave him a yellow marble as a gift. John was heartbroken when he lost it. According to the book Midnight Rising by Tony Horwitz, quote, He also displayed an unusual tolerance towards the native inhabitants of Ohio. Some persons seemed disposed to quarrel with the Indians, but I never was, he wrote. Nor did he proselytize or damn natives as heathens, as Puritans of old would have done. Instead, he traded meal for fish and game. He also built a log shelter to protect local Indians from an Indian tribe. Young John used to hang about Indians as much as he could, the beginnings of a lifelong sympathy for natives that stood in stark contrast to the prevailing hostility of white Americans. So we're seeing... A guy here who's capable of at least transcending from an early age, capable of transcending the biases of his time to an right. extent, right? That, and that's also very... loves to mention sources of young boys. Well, he was a young boy. Oh, okay, so we're gonna. He was like he was like, he was like five, not... six years old. Yeah, he was a little kid. He was not an, a, a young man at this point. I do like that it was a yellow marble. Yeah, it was a yellow marble. Very. That's important. the best color of marble, I assume. Yeah, obviously, I don't know much about marble. Well, yellow is my favorite color. That's why I'm saying it. And I'm a narcissist. So continue weird sophie sorry now during this period john brown started what would become a lifelong practice of living in difficult conditions and surviving off of his wits he spent basically his whole childhood camping and hunting for meat uh his father dressed him in the hides of animals that his family had killed and john grew up living off of animals but also holding great affection for them as a young boy he found a baby bobtail squirrel which he raised and hand tamed when his beloved pet died he mourned it for years oh my He's a very god sensitive i love boy. him yeah yeah, he's, he's, he's got some sweetness to him. Now, at age eight, John's mother died in childbirth. His father remarried almost immediately, and John considered his stepmother a very esteemable woman, but he never got over the loss of his mom, and he would mourn her mm -hmm. for the rest of his life. In total, John's father, Owen, married three women, uh, the last time when he was in his 60s, and he had 16 children totally with him, oh, uh, which yeah. is a number that John would best. <laughs> yeah, oh. the, the Browns make a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, damn, John. Yeah. Now, as a boy, John is what you would call spirited. He I mean, you would parents. have to be to be one of 16. You got to stick out. Yeah, you got to stick out. Yeah. And he seems to have. Um, he lied to his parents a lot and he was punished for it regularly. Uh, he played very hard and was notable for like playing in a kind of a violent manner. He probably hurt a lot of his friends. Um, he seems to have been one of those people who was just unreasonably full of energy from a very young age. Um, and that he was that way his entire life. He always had way too much fucking energy. Like reading about John Brown's life is fucking exhausting. Mm. Um, so John wrote that he was, quote, ambitious to perform the full labor of a man when he was already a young child. And he started working full time at age 12 when he drove his father's herd of cattle 100 miles on his own. So he's just immediately doing like more work than most grown men today. How many handled. cattle are in a herd? Um, I don't know, but it was probably a few dozen at least. Is that like a thing that people are going to be like, how do you not know that? Well, no, there's no set number for a herd. It's just a group of cows. Um, I like cows. So by the time this kid is... Oh, I hate cows. Why? Ugh, they're just stupid fat horses. That's what I think. The average you know herd it, size in the U.S. is just over 200. I think, but that's now, though. Canadian dairy that, herds average 80. 
that's probably closer to this the kind so of herd that they would have expected. Yeah. I don't think you would have, that, that would have been a pretty large herd back then, but I, I don't know. I don't Farms know. Farms with more than 100 cows it. make up just uh, 3%. Oh, no, less than that. Less than, less than a percent of the total dairy farm population. This is so interesting. Sorry, continue. Farm I grew up on had about 100, 100 head of cattle. But you don't like cows? Yeah. Well, that's part of why I don't like cows. I lived close to them for years. Were they mean? So, you know, in, in all fairness to the cows, I was worse to the cows than the cows were to me. Because I was a little boy, and it was fun to herd them with a broomstick. And uh, <laughs> all right, Harry yeah. Potter, <laughs> all right, Harry Potter. <laughs> well, no, you just you just hit them in the ass, and they run around. Hmm. I would love to see and, Anderson with like a herd of cow. Oh, they lo- dogs love it. Oh man, they love. I mean, she has cows. herding instincts. I mean, she's low to the ground, mm-hmm. but she is technically a cattle dog. Yeah, she would. Oh, she, she would, would have thrive. Fun with that. Anderson, do you hear this? Yeah, she would love that. Now, uh, so by the time John Brown is like a teenager, uh, and by that I mean like 13 or 14, he's probably done more hard physical labor than like most of the grown men in the U.S. today have done in their whole lives. Um, And most stories you'll read about John will emphasize that he was almost supernaturally tough and had an endless tolerance for hard work and physical pain. This was matched with a fanatic religious sort of distaste for comfort. He would later write with pride that he had never attempted to dance, never learned any card games, and nursed a profound dislike for vain and frivolous conversations. (laughs) He's like, I never learned to dance. Oh my God. (laughs) He footloosed himself. He footloosed himself real hard. Dude, yeah. oh man, that's hard now, to hear. He needs Kevin yeah, Bacon. He he did need Kevin Bacon. One Kevin Bacon could have really Kevin Bacon, and that makes me think. Wow! If you had if you'd had Kevin Bacon and John Brown starring side by side in the first Tremors, <laughs> would have been a fun movie. <laughs> that's so sad. Yeah, yeah, Aww, yeah. I mean, buddy. yeah. His his religion's a bummer. Um. So, uh, John later would write that his eternal war with slavery also started when he was 12, uh, when he came upon a young black slave boy being beaten with shovels for some minor crime. He wrote in his letter to that little kid, this brought John to reflect on the wretched, hopeless condition of fatherless and motherless slave children. Mm. Now, I'm sure he saw stuff like that. It may not have happened when he was 12. He was writing a letter to a 12-year-old. Maybe he judged it a bit, but... It does seem accurate to say based on Why what we know about Why is he him, writing he, a letter to a 12-year-old? Do we know? Yeah, yeah. One of his, like, as, a, as an older man, we'll get to this, he's funding, like, a guerrilla insurgency to try to free the slaves of the South, and he gets a bunch of rich backers, and while he's, like, dining with one of them, this kid asks about his life and asks him to write a letter. Oh, so it's a Hallmark movie, but with... Kind of. I mean, it's more like uh, this guy is illegally funding a terrorist, and the guy's kid wants to know more about the the John Brown's life, so John Brown writes him a note so he can buy more guns. Got it, so it's a Lifetime movie. Yeah, a Lifetime movie. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, Brown studied to be a pastor, uh, but wound up not choosing that life, uh, and it's likely that he would have been bored to tears by the work. But he remained a devoted Calvinist his entire life, following in his father's footsteps. Yeah, and he was like, he was still like really woke as a Calvinist. Like when his church... Uh, he learned that black people weren't allowed to sit at the front of the church. They had to sit in the back. He made a big point in the middle of service of getting up with his family, marching to the back, uh, walking up to one of the black families and offering them his seat at the front of the church and then sitting in the back with his family. Um, so like he's committed from the jump to, to racial equality, not just to abolition, but to Mm -hmm. like 
total racial equality, which fucking nobody is at this period. Right. Like most abolitionists are still pretty fucking racist, but mm-hmm. not John Brown. Um, yeah. Uh, at 20, following his dad's advice, John Brown married Dianth Lusk. Uh, Lusk. Dianth Lusk. Yeah, weird Wait, name. Dianth? Yeah, Dianth. D-I-A-N-T-H-E. Dianth Lusk. Weird I don't, name, right? I don't hate it, though. No, it's it's a nice name. It's uh, like and Dianth. he describes her Dianth. I like it. He describes her in his letters as remarkably plain but industrious and economical. So <laughs> he's, he's like she wasn't a bad bitch, but uh, yeah, she's ugly, but yeah. I'm like she has she's a great personality. <laughs> this is this is trash and does not pass the Bechdel test. Continue. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're asking for too much if you want someone to be racially and gender woke yeah, in I fucking mean, 1830. <laughs> yeah, definitely can have both. No way. Yeah, uh, their first <laughs> child was born a year after they married. Uh, Diane Jr.? No. Diane Jr. No. Um, no, it was Owen. Um, Come yeah, on. Not Owen. You- uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm getting that name wrong. I'll, I write it down somewhere later. Um, Great. Yeah, John and his father, Owen, uh, do not sound like they would have been fun people to hang out with, but they were on the right side of the slavery Owen. debate. He has from an the Owen, beginning. Yeah. he has a John Brown Jr. Oh, yep. he has a salmon? His son's name, he, he has, has a, a kid salmon. named Salmon? Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, he had some weird names. Wait, he yeah. has a he has a fuck ton of children too. Yeah, he has 20. What? And more than half of them survived to adulthood. Ah! Some of them die fighting with him. But, oh, he has yeah. an Ellen. My mom's name is Ellen. Hi, mom. She listens to our show. Well, there Hi, you mom. go. So, uh, John and his dad uh, were on the right side of the slavery debate from the beginning. Uh, Owen had been a fierce abolitionist in an era when that really wasn't the thing. Uh, he was also a pacifist, and for a time, John Brown was a pacifist, too. So they fought slavery without fighting the people who kept slaves, largely by helping escaped slaves with shelter and food on their way across the Underground Railroad. So while John is a kid, he and his family are, like, helping to hide escaped slaves as they make their way up to Canada. So this is, like, a part of his life from, like, the teenage years on. Um, when John was 21, he moved his young family to Pennsylvania and bought 200 acres of land. He built a house and a tannery on it. Now, the tannery had a hidden room, which Brown used to hide escaped slaves from the South. From the mid-1820s to 1835, the Brown family hosted an estimated 2,500 escaped slaves, playing wow. a critical role in their journey to freedom. So he's a committed abolitionist and like putting his money where his mouth is his entire life now while he was helping to work the underground railroad john was also helping to found a new settlement in rural pennsylvania he built a school and he built a church and he was the area's first postmaster one of his neighbors described him as an inspired paternal ruler controlling and providing for the circle of which he was the head i have a question yeah how is he funding all this I mean, it doesn't take that much money. Like, he, he works and he's like, you could buy like 200 acres was like a, a few bucks back then. Like, right. because they're trying to, most of this area after the whole genocide of the Native Americans thing, there's an unspeakable amount of empty territory that the government wants people farming. So there's all these deals where you can get most of the land for free or basically for free. You can get a loan where there's no interest because they're, they're just trying to get people farming and using it. Okay, cool. Um, I just want to yeah. make sure it was realistic and it wasn't like an episode of Friends. No, no, no. 
Um, now, as you might imagine, there were a lot of people who didn't get along with John Brown. Uh, his wife's brother was only able to visit the family on Sundays, and so John hated him because visiting on Sunday was a sin against God. Uh, John was so strict about keeping the Sabbath that his church banned all worldly conversation on that day, so you couldn't talk about anything but religion on, on Sunday. Uh, making cheese and hanging out with your friends was also forbidden on Sunday. What? Uh, work- cheese should yeah, it's never a, be banned. It's a lame-ass religion. Um, workers on John's tannery were required to attend his church and hold daily worship sessions with their families. One of John's apprentices described him as friendly as long as the conversation did not turn towards anything he considered profane or vulgar. Brown's younger brother described him as a king against whom there is no rising up. What? So Wait, say he's that a bit one of a more time. Say that one more. A, a king against whom there is no rising up. So he's basically like so he, my way or the highway? Yeah, he is absolutely convinced that he's right, um, and he will not, like, he's, he's personable unless you disagree with him, and he is not not open to being disagreed with about the things he believes. Interesting. Um, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Um, so again, a religious fundamentalist, kind of a dick about it. Yeah. Um, but also, like, a really dedicated family man, dedicated to his community, uh, and an, an anti-slavery crusader. Um, so yeah. Uh, he's an interesting fella. Uh, and when we come back from ads, uh, we will talk about how he raised his kids. I love ads. That'll be fun. I love ads too, Sophie. Products and services, I love ads. Products, a good service. I don't have a fun... It's it's usually more fun when like I say something horrible about like a bunch of kids getting murdered, and then I say, you know what won't murder all your kids? Oh, these should, products we, should we try services. one? Should we try to uh, should we try a transition? I mean, I am about to talk about how what he did to his children by the standards of the modern era uh, was abuse. Um, now I'm sad you know that he isn't. named one of them after my mom. Child abuse by the standards of our modern era. Yeah. What isn't child abuse is the products that support this show. Wow, brave. I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, and like a lot of you, I use contacts. Uh, my life doesn't really work without them. But, you know, sometimes it's a pain ordering them online, because, like, you get in there and you can't find your prescription, or maybe it's expired, and then, like, what are you going to do? you got to get your contacts, so, what, you go pay 200 bucks to get, like, uh, an appointment without insurance? That's not great for a lot of us. But Simple Contacts has made this a heck of a lot easier. With Simple Contacts, you can go online, take a five-minute vision test, you'll get it reviewed by a licensed doctor, it costs $20, and then you can order your contacts. Uh, Their prices are unbeatable, standard shipping is free, and we're offering a promotion to our listeners. You know, when I tried Simple Contacts, I found it a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. You know, I expected it was going to be a real pain. The vision test would be a pain. I thought it was all going to be frustrating. It was super fast, super easy, uh, the most convenient contact ordering experience I've ever had. So if you want $20 off your contacts, you can go to simplecontacts.com slash behind. That's just simplecontacts.com slash behind or enter code behind at checkout and you'll get $20 off your contacts. Uh, now, obviously, the simple contacts exam isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health care exam, but it can make things a lot easier for you if you're in the situations I think a lot of us are in. So again, go to simplecontacts.com slash behind or enter behind at checkout for $20 off simple contacts. We're back. We're back. So we were just talking about uh, John Brown, the father. Um, 
Now, obviously, like everybody was an abusive parent by modern standards in this period of time, but even by the standards of the mid and early 1800s, John Brown was considered a very strict parent. Uh, And I'm going to quote again from the book Midnight Rising. His firstborn, John Jr., was required to keep a ledger listing his sins and detailing the punishment due each. Unfaithfulness at work earned three lashes. Disobeying mother brought eight. The secondborn, Jason, had a vivid dream about petting a baby raccoon that was as kind as a kitten and described the encounter as if it had really happened. He was three or four at the time, and his father thrashed him for telling a wicked lie. Five-year-old Ruth muddled her shoes while gathering pussy willows and then fibbed about how she'd gotten wet. Her father switched me with the willow that had caused my sin, she recalled. <laughs> he's such a shithead oh my yeah, god he's really a, yeah what? some dick sh- yeah that's fucking rough man also like jason's uh, kid a vivid dream about petting a baby raccoon maybe like no don't try that yeah well yeah jason I mean, jason feels who? like a really weird name for that era oh yeah no there's a lot of jasons that's like a bible name right there's I don't probably know. Jason, Jason or feels two like, in the Bible. like a guy that hangs out at like a hip coffee shop and says he's working on his screenplay. Yeah, that's Jason, but he goes by Jay. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> okay, my apologies, uh, Jason. So I'm continue continue having quote. vivid dreams about petting baby raccoons. So you agree he should have been beaten for that? That's good to know. Yeah, Sophie yeah, is I'm, pro abusing children who dream about raccoons. I mean. He's one to talk. I mean, he, he, yep, it's settled. It's settled. No, but John is one to talk. Wasn't his best friend a squirrel? Well, yeah, but that was a real squirrel, not a dream raccoon. I mean, that we know of. I mean, nobody is friends with a squirrel. Nobody. Yeah, I've been friends with a squirrel. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. At my last place in LA, we hand tamed a squirrel. Anderson's and sworn enemy is a squirrel. We could even pet it briefly. We have a sworn enemy named, that's a squirrel named Edward that we deal with every morning at my apartment complex. I well, named him. I don't, I never named our friend Squirrel, but I loved her and mm. I hope she's okay. I hope Edward so, moves away. Continue. Brown apprehended two men he encountered on the road who were stealing apples and smashed a neighbor's whiskey jug after taking just a few sips and deciding the liquor had dangerous powers. Despite his severity, Brown was beloved by his children, who also recalled his many acts of tenderness. He sang hymns to them at bedtime, recited maxims from Aesop and Benjamin Franklin, and cared for his little folks when they were ill, and was gentle with animals. He warmed frozen lambs in the family washtub. As long as they're real animals? Like, what? This is very weird. He's a he's a weird guy. He's a complicated person. Um in like clearly is capable of being a giant dick as a parent to his kids and is also capable of being a really loving father. Um he's he's a, he's a he's strange a, guy. He's a flawed man, but all men are. And he's a child of a brutal time, you know? Uh Word. people wound up rougher back then. Um which Word. doesn't excuse bad shit, but it was a tough time to come up. Word. Um you try working from age 12 and losing your mom. Like, you're not going to be a softy. Um, so, Dianth, John's wife, died in childbirth, no! just like his mother. Yeah. All the Browns have wives that die in childbirth, which, again, not super not uncommon, uncommon, given the yeah. number of kids they're having. Yeah. Uh, John took this very hard, uh, obviously, and he and his five children moved in with another family briefly while they dealt with their grief. When they returned home, John hired a housekeeper. Sometimes her 16-year-old sister Mary came along to help. John Brown proposed to Mary uh, by letter several months after meeting her, and they got married in July of 1833. How old is John at this point? 
He is 31. Nope, sorry. He is 33. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so a year I mean, after his wife's death. not that uncommon death, back then, but still creepy. Not that uncommon, but still creepy. Yeah, a year after his wife's death, uh, he marries a woman half his age uh, and four years older than his oldest child. Um, sounds so like a, he weird. sounds very Hollywood at this point. <laughs> well, I think it's more like, honestly, I, I think with him, like, it's not even like a lust thing. It's a, I want to have a lot more kids. And so mm. the younger she is, the tougher she'll be, like the more, better her odds of surviving. Um, and yeah, they, she, they would stay married the rest of John's life. And she bore, bore him 13 children. Motherfuck. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was not an easy marriage for her. John Brown was no a shit. She was pregnant all the time like. and had to do with his grumpy hating of imagination ass. I think actually she would have loved to have dealt with his grumpy ass more because he was fucking gone most of the time, oh. um, which we're about to talk about. Yeah. Um, but for the early years of their then marriage, how was the she biggest pregnant problem, all the time? Well, he came back long enough to get her, knock her up again. Oh, okay. So. Damn. Um, for the first years of their marriage, John was constantly on the edge of bankruptcy. He spent money as quickly as he made it, uh, and often a lot quicker than he could make it. Uh, in the what? story of his, um, like, life, uh, farming, having kids, like, businesses. That's like true. He would, he would kids. Start bu- yeah, he would start businesses, and they'd fail. Um, hmm. So, like, he had a bunch of failed businesses. He was terrible uh, at everything to do with money. Um, he was a good worker and like had a great work ethic, but was just awful at making money or like spending his money wisely. And while John struggled to get ahead economically, the United States lurched closer and closer to violence over the issue of slavery. In the year of his birth, 1800, nearly one fifth of the five million people in the U.S. were enslaved. Ever since the invention of the cotton gin in 1793, the South had grown increasingly wealthy and influential in American politics. By the 1850s, all 12 of the United States' richest counties were in the South. On its own, the South was the fourth largest economy on Earth. Wow. For some perspective, the South in the 1800s was wealthier than California is today. Wow. So all of the money's in the fucking South. And, and like they have most of the political influence. Yeah, this is like, yeah, 1850s and stuff. That's um, crazy. They just get richer and richer. Yeah, the whole industrial revolution worldwide was driven in large part by the production of cotton by slaves in the American South. Like mm-hmm. even down to like the countries that had banned slavery, like England. Um, like cotton was critical for like the building of boats and ships and like a lot of different like factory equipment, and it was all made possible by enslaved uh, black people. So like the whole industrial revolution is undergirded by black slavery, even in the countries that didn't have slaves legal at that point. Um, which is important to note. Yeah. Now, the sheer mass of money in the South uh, and thus behind slavery made it impossible for most people in the 1830s to imagine an end to the institution. In 1831, uh, as John Brown entered his 30s, uh, the abolition movement was growing, but still firmly fringe in the context of national politics. This started to change that August, when an enslaved preacher named Nat Turner gathered up a small band of his fellow slaves and launched an insurrection. Armed with hatchets, knives, and muskets, they executed roughly 60 white Virginians and gathered a small number of slaves to their banner. Like John Brown, Nat Turner had also been born in 1800. Also like John, he came to view himself as something of a prophet and believed that he had been chosen by God to bring about the end of slavery. Turner's band did not just kill slaveholders. They executed women, schoolchildren, and even a baby in a cradle. Um, So Nat Turner's 
raid is a, a complicated thing to talk about morally. I was like, um, okay, okay, what? No, no, yeah, no, these they no, they are no. they are just killing. They're killing all of the white people they come across. Um, and in terms of like sort of parsing that out in a moral context, I found an interesting CBS article okay. um, that interviewed Bruce Turner, who was a great, great, great grandchild of Nat Turner, and Rick Francis, who's a descendant of one of the slaveholding families that Turner massacred. And okay. I'm going to quote from that now. Both Turner and Francis are avid students of history who have researched their own families as well as the historical record of the rebellion. Anderson Cooper put the question to them both. Is Nat Turner a hero? Yes, he is, says Bruce Turner, because he saw an opportunity to try to correct something that was an extremely bad evil. He believes Nat Turner was a freedom fighter who started a movement that helped end the institution of slavery. Prior to the insurrection, slave owners actually believed that the slaves were happy in their condition, he says. Nat Turner changed that. Rick Francis is no defender of the horrible institution practiced by his forebears, but he does not see Nat Turner as a heroic figure. Francis questions whether a desire to end slavery is what motivated Turner to kill. He also points out that Nat Turner and his followers killed many women and children. They were a means to an end, says Bruce Turner. Women were slave owners. Children were slave owners. And the baby in the and cradle, I, question mark? Yeah, I mean, I think what Nat Turner would say, if you could bring him back and pose that question to him, is that baby would have grown up to be a slave owner. Almost none of the children of slave-owning families grew up to repudiate those beliefs. It was very uncommon. Um, and Turner's argument, I think, would have been something along the lines of, they were all part of this institution, um, mm -hmm. and they didn't spare our children, so why should we spare theirs, you know? And... Mm -hmm. Uh, is this like I'm on a 60 a, Minutes thing or something with Anderson Cooper? Yeah, I think so. I just found it in an article, but I think it was part of Anderson Cooper's show, yeah. Shout out Anderson Cooper, the father of my dog. Yeah. It's a complicated story, the tale of Nat Turner. Yeah. And how you, where, how you feel about how justified it was is a matter of your own personal morality. I feel like you um, can't really judge it, like, no, not really thinking I, I about would, it. I would argue that. You can't judge... I don't think you can judge the actions of an enslaved person taking action against the people who kept him in bondage, mm -mm. Um, no matter how terrible uh, they seem based on the morality you get to have in a much less fucked up era. Right. Um, but I'm not going to not going to slam my opinions on Nat Turner on the audience. We have a lot of John Brown to get through. So Nat's uprising did not work out. Um, while he eventually gathered about 40 slaves, they failed to make it to the town of Jerusalem and its armory, which is where they were headed to try to get guns. Uh, white militiamen succeeded in scattering Turner's men and executing or killing most of them. Turner's insurrection inspired a vicious white reprisal, um, and gangs of armed whites murdered hundreds upon hundreds of black people and impaled their severed heads on road signs as a warning to others. Turner's body was decapitated, quartered, and skinned. His skull and brain were sent off to be studied, uh, because people were like, why would a slave not want to be a slave? The fat from Turner's body was rendered into wagon wheel grease, and his skin was tanned and sent off to the families of the people killed in his raid as a souvenir. Um, Jesus so Christ. This is a disgusting. fucking brutal time. Like, you really got to remember that whenever you try to think through these people's actions and decisions and morality is like, it was fucking rough. And like, how do we, like, did somebody write all this down? Like, this is yeah, creepy. Yeah, yeah. They, weren't, they weren't, weren't ashamed of it. And like, if you're the fucking, if you're the white oppressors who want, who are, who are doing, who are massacring these people and chopping up Nate's body, like you want all of the black people who might come across the story to know what happens when they stand up. Like, that's part of how you oppress people. It's disturbing. Yay.
this would have been a great time for an ad transition. I would have been like, you know what doesn't oppress people? The products, but... You're early, bro. We're early. I, I know. I just... It would have been good. Nope. So... Um, prior to Nat Turner's uprising, most abolitionists supported a slow, piecemeal emancipation of enslaved blacks and sought to basically ship them to Africa or the Caribbean. Uh, the nation of Liberia was born from this basic idea. And this is like what Abraham Lincoln and others like him kind of would have advocated in the period. Um, prior to Nat Turner, this is about the best you could hope for from woke white people, that they'd be like, slavery's wrong, but we don't want him here. Mm. Um, now... After Nat Turner, abolitionists were increasingly likely to urge an immediate end to the institution of slavery. And the figurehead of this new wing of the abolitionist movement was a guy named William Lloyd Garrison, who was the editor for, uh, of a newspaper called The Liberator in Boston. Um, now, The Liberator started publication eight months before Turner's revolt, and Garrison's prose cut a new and utterly uncompromising tone that fit in well with the era ignited by Nat Turner. Garrison had nothing but contempt for the centrists of his day and their advocacy of gradual reform. He wrote, Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. So... <laughs> After Turner, some stronger voices start to speak up in favor of abolitionism. I and like will not, be heard. Uh, I like that. Yeah. And not like, a, oh, we'll do it piece by piece and like we'll slowly. They're like, no, this shit has to end. It's fucked. Not like, um, okay, we'll transfer you to another department. None of that bullshit. Yeah. Fuck this shit. Yeah. yeah. Garrison is a fuck this shit kind of guy. I like Garrison. But he is a pacifist. He's also a pacifist. Am I not going to like Garrison? Should I, should I not say that No, yet? no, 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 no. I don't agree with everything Garrison thought about how to end slavery, but you can't fault him on a moral level. He just didn't believe in violence. Um, mm. And it turns out violence was the only way to end slavery. But um, you can't fault him for not wanting the nation to be convulsed by a bloody war. Um, yeah. So, for a time, John Brown uh, approached his abolitionism through the lens of pacifism, too. But in the years after Nat Turner's rebellion, the debate over slavery turned more violent. Pro-slavery Southerners saw what had happened in Virginia with Nat Turner as the culmination of their worst nightmares. The sheer number of slaves, who in some areas outnumbered whites, terrified them. They believed that any talk of abolitionism deserved an immediate and violent response. In 1837, a pro-slavery mob murdered Elijah Lovejoy, the abolitionist editor of what was effectively an anti-slavery zine. They tossed his printing press into the Mississippi. Lovejoy had, futilely, armed himself in self-defense, which William Lloyd Garrison disapproved of, but which John Brown seems to have taken as something of an inspiration. At a meeting of Brown's church, convened to protest Lovejoy's murder, John Brown swore a declaration. Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. So he takes Lovejoy's murder as a rallying call. And he buys a gun shortly after this point. So he... He's he, so far no weapons? Up to this point, he was like, uh, he was he was on, like his dad had been a pacifist. His dad was a pacifist. Mm -hmm. um, he was a pacifist. He didn't like, he had been a child during the War of 1812 and he had a really negative idea of soldiers because he'd seen what they did in the areas where right. they like bivouacked and stuff. So he was very anti-violence. This starts to change after Lovejoy's murder. He starts to think maybe violence is the only way we're going to get rid of slavery. Now, Brown did not follow this declaration by joining any of the abolitionist groups in his area. Instead, he decided to turn his large family into what amounted to an abolitionist insurgent cell. Um, John's surviving children later recall the night he sat down with his wife and his three oldest sons. Quote, 
He asked us who of us were willing to make common cause with him in doing all in our power to break the laws of the wicked and pluck the spoil out of his teeth. Are you, Mary, John, Jason, and Owen? John's wife and children all prayed with him and swore an oath to fight for slavery's defeat. Over the years, John would bring the rest of his enormous brood into this anti-slavery pact, boys and girls included. His relationship with his sons is fascinating to me, and I think this paragraph from Midnight Rising makes it clear why. Quote, None of Brown's sons adopted their father's orthodox faith, and several openly challenged it, an apostasy that vexed him tremendously. But all seven of his unregenerate boys, who survived childhood, would take up arms against slavery. They held firmly to the idea that father was right, Salmon recalled. Where he had led, we were glad to follow, and every one of us had the courage of his convictions. Brown's brothers, in-laws, and other kin would also lend support to his anti-slavery crusade. There was a Brown family conspiracy, his eldest son said, to break the power of slavery. That's kind of badass. So John's kids, yeah, none of his kids follow him in his religion. They're like, you're kind of nuts on this, but like, the old dude's right about slavery. That shit's fucked. They're like, they're like, listen, you know, I can't fuck with you on that, but I'll get behind you on that. So they're like, but the slavery shit. The slavery shit. I mean, I mean, like, (laughs) they're kind of (laughs) right. Yeah, and it's kind of like you get the feeling from John in doing this with his family that he kind of recognizes once he commits himself to this cause that like, I'm going to wind up breaking the law. I'm going to wind up being a terrorist. I'm going to commit a shitload of crimes. And so I I can't trust joining a group full of people that I don't know. Like, it's got to just be me and my family. Um, Like, otherwise, somebody's going to rat me out. Yeah, he's Um, got nepotism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's nepotism for terrorism. Maybe it's just the smart way to do it. Um, But he does commit to using his family in this way. It's like hiring somebody you know and not, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, we won't make more comparisons to drug dealing, but it's like what you do when you deal drugs. Now, for the first years of this crusade (laughs) to end slavery, the Brown family efforts were mostly limited to helping hide slaves. And for most people, this would have been more than enough. And in my opinion, anyone who helped to operate the Underground Railroad in that time, even in a minor capacity, did something heroic. But just that was not enough for John Brown. He was clearly frustrated for years by his inability to strike any sort of direct blow against slavery. This was exacerbated by his constant and repeated failures at business. He wound up at the edge of bankruptcy several times and moved his family all around the New West in search of better prospects. Brown tried fur trading, cattle driving, surveying, and even breeding racehorses. But by 1840, he was so broke that he could not even afford postage for his letters, and he declared bankruptcy. Man. Yeah. Now, his attempts to find new work led him away from his family for months at a time, and the letters he was able to send home to his wife showed a distinct depression had gripped him. He signed unworthily yours above his name and referred to his wife as the sharer of my poverty, trials, discredit, and sore afflictions. In 1941, the year after he declared bankruptcy, John's family was torn apart by a horrific bout of dysentery, which killed four of his children, including his nine-year-old daughter, Sarah, and his six-year-old son, Charles. So this is a rough fucking life this guy lives. Like, yeah. Now, for most of the early 1840s, John spent his time trying desperately to pull his family out of the financial hole he dug them into. It wasn't until 1847 that he had meaningful contact with members of the abolition movement. That year, he moved to the town of Springfield, Massachusetts, where he convinced a moneyed investor to fund a wool trading business. Brown was bad at the job, as he was bad at everything to do with money, and it failed (laughs) miserably. But his time in Springfield brought him into contact with a huge number of freed blacks. While he was there, he met Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave and renowned speaker and writer. 
The two had dinner in Brown's exceedingly humble home, and during that dinner, John walked Frederick through the plans that he'd spent years cooking up. He unrolled a map of the Allegheny Mountains, which run from Pennsylvania and into the southeast. He pointed out that these mountains were filled with caves and natural fortresses. They were, John thought, the perfect place for an insurgent army to hide. He told Douglas he believed the mountains had been put there by God for the emancipation of the Negro race. Over his dinner table, John Brown outlined an ambitious plan to use the Alleghenies as a base for a guerrilla army that would raid plantations, free their slaves, and send them north to swell the ranks of his army. Now, Douglas thought this plan was stirring, but probably outside the realm of possibility. So he thought it was a good idea, but he didn't think it was going to work. But he still found himself deeply taken and in admiration of John Brown. He described him as built for times of trouble and fitted to grapple with the flintiest hardships. While in Springfield, Brown gained a reputation for being the exceedingly rare sort of white man who not only agitated for abolition, but actually treated black people as his equals in his personal life. John Stouffer, a Harvard historian who studies the history of race in America, says, He stood apart from every other white in the historical record for his ability to burst free from the power of racism. Blacks were among his closest friends, and in some respects he felt more comfortable around blacks than he did around whites. So he's he's a, he's a, uh, you'd call him a woke dude. Yeah, um, he say. was famous. Yeah. He was kind of infamous among his fellow white people for dining with black families regularly and addressing the adults as Mr. and Mrs. And it's a sign of how racist America was at that time. They're like, "He calls them Mr.? My god. Like that's what we're dealing with in the broader culture at this point." Um I hate Frederick white people. Douglass. White people yeah, suck. <laughs> it was, it white people fucking suck. <laughs> Yeah, you don't wind up super proud of American history when you really get into the weeds of race. Um, You're like, yep, kind of hard to. Oh, my God. But not John Brown. So that's good. Uh, Frederick Douglass himself said that Brown, though a white gentleman, is in sympathy a black man and is deeply interested in our cause as though his own soul had been pierced with the iron of slavery. So you'd, you'd call him a good ally is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Yeah. In 1848, Garrett Smith, a wealthy abolitionist and another good ally, bought a huge chunk of land in northern New York and gave it away to a large group of freed slaves. He asked Brown to move there in order to help the new community get on its feet. John agreed, in part because he thought that the colony in the Adirondacks might be able to act as a subterranean passway that would effectively expand the Underground Railroad's capacity by several orders of magnitude. He also thought it might act as the start of a chain of fortresses for the army of abolitionists and free blacks he planned to build to raid the plantations of the South. Now, John Brown's plans here are not as impossible as they sound. He knew that even with a large guerrilla army, he could not hope to free all four million enslaved blacks, but he could cause a panic and collapse the economies in slaveholding states as a result of that panic. But unfortunately, John Brown's economic realities forced him to push this plan on hold while he traveled to Europe to sell a huge pile of wool for his failing business. He left his long-suffering wife and children alone in the relatively primitive conditions of their New York farm. Now, we have no evidence that John Brown was physically abusive to his wife, and in fact, from the evidence we have, it seems very unlikely that he was, but it would be fair to say that theirs was not a healthy relationship. And I'm going to quote again from Midnight Rising. Her frequently absent husband acknowledged the hardship she endured in an unusually tender letter in 1847, noting his follies, the very considerable difference in our age, and the fact that I sometimes chide you severely. The toll was evident to Richard Dana when he visited the Browns at Adirondack home. He described Mary, then just 35, as rather an invalid. So he's, it's a, he's, he's a horrible husband. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, now, in his defense, it's a hard time to raise a family, but he's not, 
he's not good at being around. Um, Sometimes now, I chide you severely. Was that the quote? Yeah, yeah. No. He probably, probably, yeah. He yells at her or yeah, something for not being him. thrifty I don't enough. Like that. Yeah, he he scolds everybody. He's a yeah, scolding kind of guy. He seems like a guy. yeller. I don't know. I think he was probably kind of the quiet sort of scolder. Mm. But I I don't know about that. Um, that's just the feeling I get from him that he was the kind of like quietly furious at you, and that was the worst thing. But I don't know. Now, Brown's tour of Europe ended, as per usual, an economic disaster. Uh, He and his family were left even poorer than before. Uh, Brown returned to the farm in New York and for a time worked at helping free blacks build a place for themselves. Why is he so bad at making money? He's just terrible at it. Why? I don't know. I I mean, it was probably, it was hard. It was hard. It's hard to make money. It's like he can't do anything. He can't, like, he's the the dude that tries, like, every career and is like, "Mm, it's just not for me. Yeah, he's he's just bad at it. He's bad at the business aspect. He's a good worker, but he keeps trying to run businesses yeah, and he like sucks he has at it work every ethic. time. I don't know. He's a great worker. Everyone says that, but he's just shit at like the 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 capitalism part of it. Um like selling things he's bad at. And he keeps trying to do it. Do you want to so, know what you're not bad at? Oh shit, selling things? Oh my god. Oh, Sophie, nice. That Thank was you. a good one. Thank you. Nailed it. Nailed Thank the you. ad transition. Thank you. Yes. Very proud. So do something John Brown couldn't do and buy products over the internet. Yeah. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back. So... Um, outside of New York, where John Brown labored to help uh, build a colony for freed blacks, the ideological war over slavery had reached a fever pitch in 1850 with the implementation of the Fugitive Slave Law. Now, this law was a craven act of political compromise by American moderates to the demands of the slaveholding states. It brutally punished anyone caught aiding a slave and mandated that all citizens help capture escaped slaves. In 1854, another act of Congress pushed northern abolitionists even further. From the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, under pressure from the South and its Democratic allies in the North, Congress opened the territories of Kansas and Nebraska to slavery under a concept called popular sovereignty. The more northerly Nebraska was in little danger of becoming a slave state. Kansas, however, was up for grabs. Pro-slavery advocates, the meanest and most desperate of men, armed to the teeth with revolvers, bowie knives, rifle, and cannon, while they are not only thoroughly organized, but under pay from slaveholders. John Brown Jr. wrote to his father, poured into Kansas from Missouri. Anti-slavery settlers begged for guns and reinforcements. Among the thousands of abolitionists who left their farms, workshops, or schools to respond to the call were John Brown and five of his sons. Brown himself arrived in Kansas in October 1855, driving a wagon loaded with rifles he had picked up in Ohio and Illinois, determined, he said, to help defeat Satan and his legions. Hell yeah. So, this is the first time John's going to have a chance to confront slavery violently. And defeat Um, Satan and his legions. Yeah, he sure does. Now, Bleeding Kansas, as the conflict came to be known, proved to be one of the bloodiest pre-Civil War chapters in America's battle over slavery. Something like 200 people were killed, but possibly Mm -hmm. hundreds more. It was also the event that launched John Brown on the path that would guarantee him several paragraphs in American history textbooks for years to come. Shortly after Brown arrived in Kansas, the pro-slavery population of the state elected a legislature via a shameless electoral fraud. This body voted into law extreme pro-slavery regulations, which among other things punished the expression of anti-slavery views with two years of hard labor. One pro-slavery editor at the time made the goals of the slaveholding Kansans clear. Quote, we will continue to tar and feather, drown, lynch, and hang every white-livered abolitionist who dares to pollute our soil. Ugh, so God. these people are like, we want to extend slavery here. We're willing to fight for what we believe in, and we'll kill all of you weak, like, shitty abolitionist free stater, like, assholes. Like, we don't give a fuck. We'll murder you. And the government kind of just lets this happen because it doesn't want to piss off the South, which is the most powerful voting bloc in the United States at the moment. Because 1800s um, America. Yeah, and you know, kind of modern America in some ways. Yeah, I was going to say, because this is America. Yeah. Now, Brown's first armed action in Kansas occurred in defense of a group of abolitionist Kansans who held their own Congress in opposition to the pro-slavery Kansan Congress. Uh, Brown's militia showed up with guns, revolvers, swords, powder, and caps to defend the vote against pro-slavery raiders from Missouri, who had shut down other similar events. No enemy appeared. But in May 1856, pro-slavery militiamen sacked the city of Lawrence, Kansas, a known abolitionist hotbed. They burned and looted and murdered their political opponents. At the same time, new 
news reached Kansas that Charles Sumner, the most prominent abolitionist in the Senate, had been beaten nearly to death on the floor of Congress by a South Carolina congressman armed with a cane. John Brown Holy found himself fuck. in... Yeah, yeah, it's a fucked up chapter of history. He's like, fu- like beating him with a cane in front of people and nobody's doing anything? Yeah, I mean, eventually they pulled him apart, but it was like three years before Sumner could retake his seat. He was Jesus so badly injured. Christ, it's horrible. Yeah, so John Brown was pissed off at this. Duh. He was furious about the massacre in Lawrence. He was furious about what had happened to Sumner, and he was pissed more than anything that no abolitionists, none of the moderates, were doing a goddamn thing about these fucking pro-slavery assholes and all the violence that they were just allowed to do for some reason. Um, he was pissed. Um, so... Over the course of several weeks, Brown formed his sons and a group of local volunteers into an anti-slavery militia. His goal was not merely to defend abolitionists from the violence of pro-slavery mobs. He wanted to take the fight to them. When one of his neighbors urged caution, Brown replied, Caution? Caution, sir? I am eternally tired of hearing the word caution. It is nothing but the word of cowardice. Hell yeah. On May 24th, John Brown and a select group of his men, including several of his sons, went on a raid across a series of farms in Pottawatomie Creek, Kansas. They dragged five pro-slavery advocates out of their homes in the dead of night and hacked them to death with swords. Now, these are generally described as broadswords, but I've seen pictures of them, and they seem to have been closer to Roman gladiuses. Um, I'm sorry, what does that mean? It's like a short sword. It's a broad-bladed short sword. You're welcome, um, listeners, because nobody yeah. knew what that meant. And the five people, people that did, did, congrats. Now, uh, you get different attitudes on this based on like who you hear it from, because this is a very brutal yeah. act. Like, he, he drags these people out of their house, they're unarmed, and he murders them um, with fucking swords. With fucking um, swords. Yeah. So depending on who you read, you'll come to different attitudes about what exactly this sort of this counts as. Um, Smithsonian Magazine says this. By almost any definition, the Potawatomi killings were a terrorist act intended to sow fear in slavery's defenders. Brown viewed slavery as a state of war against blacks, a system of torture, rape, oppression, and murder, and saw himself as a soldier in the army of the Lord against slavery, says one scholar. Kansas was Brown's trial by fire, his initiation into violence, his preparation for real war. So... Not every historian agrees with calling the Potawatomi Massacre an act of terrorism. In a piece for the National Archives, a guy named Paul Finkelman makes this argument. Kansas, Bleeding Kansas as it is known, was in the midst of a civil war. Between 1855 and 1860, about 200 men would be killed in Kansas. Not all were politically motivated, and historians disagree on what constitutes a political killing, but even the most conservative scholar of this violence finds 56 killings that were tied to slavery and politics. I think this number is low, and that most of the 200 deaths were actually politically motivated and tied to slavery and Bleeding Kansas. But the actual number of political killings is less important than the understanding that in Kansas there was a violent civil war being fought over slavery. Men on both sides were killed. Brown's actions are most famous because they were five killings and he strategically used swords rather than guns, which would have alerted neighbors. This is the nature of guerrilla warfare. It is brutal and bloody, but it is not terrorism. Oh, so he used the swords because they're quiet. Yeah, exactly. And guns were loud as shit back then. Mm -hmm. They're not quiet today. Um, No, but I'm just louder. Yeah. So, you know, I, I tend to be on the side of like, it was terrorism. I think it, it probably qualifies as that, but terrorism isn't necessarily invalid. Um, it's an act, like in a guerrilla war, it's a tactic. And at that point, John and his men were outnumbered, um, and they wanted to strike a blow, and they wanted to scare the shit out of these people who'd been acting with impunity. And I think they did it. Yeah. But again, different people, different opinions. So, 
the Potawatomi massacre escalated the conflict in Kansas to a new level. Pro-slavery forces staged what affected to a full-scale invasion of the territory. There were battles, towns were sacked, and yeah, a lot of people were killed. John Brown gained a reputation during the fighting as a leader of cunning and skill, and earned the appellation Captain Brown. Mm. For months, he fought a grinding insurgent campaign that made him a household name in much of the North. There were stories of like, he led this like spirited defense of this town that, you know, they eventually lost, but they inflicted a lot of casualties on the enemy and like made it really bloody for them. He successfully like outmaneuvered this big force of pro-slavery guys and took like they surrendered to him and he took a Bowie knife from the guy in charge. So he's like, and there's stories about this, like journalists meet him when he's out in the field and like write about him and his band of, uh, of guerrilla warriors and stuff. And he becomes very famous in the North. Um, and it's, you know, it's, a, a, again, it's a brutal guerrilla war. One yeah. of his sons during this point is captured and executed by pro-slavery forces. Um, two of his sons are wounded. So it's like, it's rough. But he walks out of bleeding Kansas, a, a national hero, really. Now, when the violence in Kansas subsided, John Brown decided to use his newfound fame to drum up support and funding to open up a new front in the war against slavery. He wrote his son Jason a letter saying, I have only a short time to live, only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause. Brown, now a wanted man, traveled the northern states, dressed in the gear of a guerrilla fighter, drumming up funds and support for his war on slavery. He showed off the bowie knife he'd taken from a pro-slavery militia leader and played up the daring do involved in his flight from the law. From the book Midnight Rising, quote, Brandishing the captured Bowie knife strapped just above his boot or loading a revolver as he warned of federal marshals on his trail, Brown also introduced a frisian to the genteel parlors of New England. I should hate to spoil these carpets, he told one Boston hostess, but you know I cannot be taken alive. So he plays up this reputation. He has some um, great, like, action hero quotes. Yeah, he really does. He's, he's absolutely so, an he's action hero. He's got some hero. cool guy quotes. He's absolutely an action hero. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's he's a pretty he's pretty hardcore. He's a badass. Yeah, like, he's pretty badass. Yeah. Problematic, now, but badass. Problematic, but badass. Now, John spent much of the next two years, yeah, buying arms and raising funds to buy more arms, as well as working, mostly unsuccessfully, to convince other white abolitionists and freed blacks to sign up to fight in the army he was raising. Gradually, he built up a network of six wealthy backers, all of whom were, to differing degrees, committed to the cause of ending slavery. These men, known to history as the Secret Six, made it possible for Brown to secure several hundred Sharps rifles, a significant number of revolvers, and eventually 500 pikes. Now, a pike is basically yeah. a dagger at the end of a long spear. And Brown planned to use these pikes to arm freed slaves. Um, he couldn't give them rifles right off the bat because yeah. rifles at the time were really complicated. If you ha if you didn't know how to use one, it took a lot of training to be functional with them. And he wanted to be able to arm people immediately. So they had like long, like long, like sticks with like a. Like a, like a dagger at the end. Yeah. It's less like a point, like a spearhead, and more like a literal knife. It's kind of um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, they called them Kansas toothpicks. It was pretty cool. No machetes. Um, uh you know, I mean, the Bowie knives are basically machetes. They had a lot of Bowie knives. Um Cool. But yeah. Uh, and so Brown thought, number one, like the pikes were important so he could have something to arm freed slaves with immediately, you know, when he wouldn't have time to train them right away. But he also felt that immediately arming freed slaves was a critical step in their emancipation, stating, give a slave a pike and you make him a man. Deprive him of the means of resistance and you keep him down. So we thought this was very important on like a, a level of like building morale in this army he was seeking to make. 
Now, obviously, fleeing from the law and raising funds to form a guerrilla army did not leave much time for Brown to see his wife and family. He begged his wealthy supporters to donate money to help them make ends meet. He wrote one donor, I have no other income for their support, and my wife being a good economist and a real old-fashioned businesswoman, she has gone through the two past winters in our open cold house, unfinished outside and not plastered. So it's miserable for Mary. God, Mary's um, life sucks. Yeah, Mary's life is fucking trash. Mary's like, life is, is so she's hard. rough. Yeah. Uh, she did not complain often, but she was clearly miserable as a result of her husband's chosen vocation. In letters to her, Brown admitted that his work had left her in a kind of widowed state. Yeah, seriously, so basically he's like, she's I'm like I'm already abandoned. basically dead. Yeah, yeah, she is abandoned. Yeah, sorry, um, Mary. And for that the remaining sucks, years girl. of his life, yeah, it was rare for him to spend more than a couple of days at, at a time with his family. Uh, in March of 1857, Mary sent John a letter informing him that their sons had committed themselves to learn and practice war no more. So she's like, she's like, kind sorry, of angrily, yeah, they're done with this shit. They're like, um, they're like, she, she, she's stepping in, and then I'm sure John was like, "Yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's fine." No, he didn't do that, did he? Well, kinda. I mean, he replied that it was not at my solicitation that they engaged in it at the first. So uh, he says, like, it, it wasn't my decision that they did it, um, and they don't all come to fight with him after this. And he also seems to have like felt bad after that letter. Several mm -hmm. days later, he sent his two-year-old daughter Ellen a Bible. Uh, and inscribed in it in remembrance of her father, whose care and attention she was deprived in her infancy. Oh, that's so, really, 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 really sad. Yeah, it's sad. It's my, sad. My mom's name is Ellen, so I feel that harder. Yeah. Aww. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things. Uh, like, what do you, what do you, like, if this was like, if he if he was abandoning his family like this to make it in Hollywood, I'd be like dick move bro but like it is slavery like it's the worst thing this country did well tied for worst with the genocide like kind of worth abandoning your family over i hate to say it like it is slavery yeah <laughs> like, yeah like shit you know <laughs> like, um sorry but, ellen. You know, it it sucks for ellen and it sucks for mary um Six of John Brown's sons had fought in Kansas, as I said. One was killed, two wounded, and the others were pretty traumatized by the experience. But not all of them had, in fact, committed to study war no more. Uh, Owen Brown traveled with his father in 1858 as he sought final support for his impending invasion of the South. Now, by this point, Brown's plan for an insurgent war on the South had evolved. Rather than taking time to establish a guerrilla army and a string of forts, he decided to assault the town of Harper's Ferry, which contained the largest armory in the country. It probably had more guns than any other place in America. Now, Brown believed that Harper's Ferry was a defensible position and that he'd be able to use its 100,000 firearms to train and equip the army of slaves he was sure would flock there once word of his efforts got out. In April 1858, John Brown met Harriet Tubman, who at that point had made eight secret trips to Maryland and led dozens of slaves to freedom. Brown was deeply impressed by Tubman, and this is like a problematic wokeness. I don't know what you call this. Yeah. He referred to her as a man in all of his writings and talking of her, and he did it because he respected her so much. Uh, he said that she was naturally the most man that he had ever met. Um, so he's he's saying this out of respect, but it's kind of problematic. It's like an eighteen hundreds um, woke compliment, but a two thousand nineteen yeah. like dude. 
Yeah. He also referred to her as General Tubman, which is a less problematic appellation of respect. And, you know, for her part, Harriet Tubman was equally taken with John Brown. Kate Larson, one of Tubman's biographers, says Tubman thought Brown was the greatest white man who ever lived. So he is very popular um, for his dedication with the, like, sort of leading figures uh, of, like, black liberation in this period of time. Yeah, I would say. He got co he got co signed by Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Yeah, yeah, pretty solid. Those are, those, <laughs> right. those are some pretty solid co signs. Yeah, yeah, good. Like if he'd written a book, good names to have on the jacket. Yeah. Now. <laughs> John Brown solicited both Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman for help with his planned attack on the South. Tubman was unable to help due to illness and may have also been unwilling to help because she was worried that if it failed, it would expose the Underground Railroad. And Frederick refused because he rightly viewed the attempt as suicidal lunacy. He warned Brown <laughs> that he was going into a perfect steel trap and that he would not get out alive. So Douglass clearly respects what Brown is doing, but is like, I'm just not willing to kill myself for this. I think, you know, I and he was doing a lot of stuff outside of that i think yeah. he made the right call um for sure in may of 1858 john brown and 35 of his followers convened in chatham canada to How host a constitution to it's not hard to get to canada right. you're up in the in new england it's right there all right just seems like, like he's all the, over the place he's like he yeah he travels around yeah. i mean it just seems like yeah he's moving around a lot i mean it just it's hard enough to travel in 2019 well, yeah, but like you're in, if you're in Illinois, like getting up to Canada, it's like going to fucking uh, uh, Sacramento from Los Angeles. Like it's not really a big deal. Mm. Um, it's like right there. I don't like Sacramento. Um, well, I don't like Sacramento either. I'd rather be in Canada, but. Yeah, for sure. I'm just making a point. So, in May of 1858, John Brown and 35 of his followers convened in Chatham, Canada to host a constitutional convention in order to create a new American government. Um, see, by this point, the failures of the existing government to do anything about slavery uh, and a recent Supreme Court ruling that black people had no claim to the rights guaranteed by the Constitution had convinced John that a whole new government needed to be established. Just He, he basically decides our Constitution is too, like stained by the evil of slavery to continue and what we part of what we need to do is like build a new country basically and the the foundation yeah. of the new country needs to be black liberation yeah. yeah i mean so i mean yeah there's some weird stuff to his plans too he's not a perfect man no, i'm uh, sure i'm gonna he's, read a quote he's flawed yeah. even though he's co-signed but he's flawed yeah he's he's flawed he's flawed and i i think this quote from midnight rising uh by tony horwitz makes it clear kind of both what was neat about what he was doing there and what was a little problematic John Brown cited this infamous ruling in his Constitution's preamble, which explained why a new government was needed, to protect our persons, property, lives, and liberties. But the 48 articles that followed were less concerned with rights than with the command structure of Brown's highly militarized state. The role of its weak president in Congress was mainly to advise a powerful commander-in-chief, who could tap the treasury as needed for money and valuables captured by honorable warfare. Uh, article, I think, 25 was directed towards another preoccupation of Brown's. It forbade filthy conversation, indecent behavior, intoxication, and unlawful intercourse. The Constitution was read aloud at Chatham, debated, and signed the same day. Every man was anxious to have his name at the head, wrote one of Brown's Iowa party, but the delegates showed distinctly less enthusiasm two days later when they reconvened to elect officials. The black men nominated for the presidency declined to stand, and the post was left vacant along with many others. Only two congressmen were appointed, and the cabinet was filled by Iowa recruits. Brown, unsurprisingly, was elected by acclamation as commander-in-chief. 
So so you're right. There's like it's like okay, and then some it's problematic like, stuff in there. It's yeah. like filthy conversation. Uh, what mm-hmm. did you say? Unlawful yeah. intercourse. Yeah, Who's yeah, he, the yeah. Fuck Intoxication. He's the fuck I wouldn't police. have done well. He's no, the fuck you, police a little bit. You would. You there would not are, survive. There this are people who will compare John Brown. Yeah. Jesus. There's people who will compare John Brown to Osama bin Laden, and it's not a hundred percent. Obviously, what he was fighting for was better, but you're not a hundred percent off. He was a long bearded, uncompromising religious fundamentalist um, who was willing to kill for his beliefs. Now, Brown grew up poor, and again, what he was fighting about was fundamentally yeah. more moral than would would you know. And also, Brown didn't attack civilians. Like he he understood they yeah. were going to die, but he that he didn't make him his target. But like there are some parallels. He is a religious fundamentalist, right. and not in a fun way. No, um, he's the fuck police. He's the fuck police. You can't yeah. say fucks. You can't fuck, and you there's no there's no drinking. So yeah, there's no drunk John fucks. Brown. You know, and it's it's a marker of how fucked the times are. Yeah, that John Brown is still a hundred percent the best guy in he's the country. He's still the wokest <laughs> white man in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the best but white guy in the also country. Yeah, the fuck police. Yeah, in more ways than one. And not he, a great time. I just want to <laughs> side note to to listeners: if you look up young John Brown, looks a lot like Igor from Young Frankenstein. He absolutely looks like Igor from Young Frankenstein, um, to an extent that's bizarre. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Continue. In December of 1858, as Brown's plans for an invasion of the South matured, he was suddenly presented with another opportunity to strike a blow against slavery. A Missouri slave named Jim Daniels found him in Kansas and told him that he and several other slaves were about to be sold and needed Brown's help. John gathered a force of 18 insurgents and set out for Missouri, where they carried out a highly illegal raid on a farmhouse and freed five slaves at gunpoint. They proceeded next to another farm and freed five more slaves. A small group of Brown's raiders also broke into a another home, freeing a single slave and shooting her owner dead. The raiders stole oxen, horses' food, clothing, and also captured two white hostages before they crossed back into Kansas. This sparked rage across the South, and the governor of Missouri, as well as President Buchanan, offered rewards for Brown's capture. Many moderate abolitionists were also unhappy with Brown. They felt that invading a southern state, stealing property, and killing a slave owner was a step too far. In a letter to the New York Tribune, Brown mocked these people, pointing out that the previous May, a force of pro-slavery militiamen had killed five anti-slavery settlers in Kansas. There'd been no outcry, he noted, but when he freed 11 human beings, the government and many people were, he wrote, filled with holy horror, which is a solid point. Yeah. So... Brown was confronted on the road by 80 pro-slavery militiamen. He had only 22 men in his band, but they charged the pro-slavery forces and caused them to flee in panic. Brown captured several horses and took more prisoners. By February of 1859, Brown had escaped Kansas. Fleeing the law all the while, he succeeded in leading his group across Iowa and onto a boxcar headed for Chicago. The freed slaves made it from there to Detroit, where they were taken by ferry to Canada. One of the freed women gave birth along the way. She named her child John Brown. That's dope. That's a fucking dope story, that right? That's a very, very cool shout out, Detroit. Um, yeah. Love that. Yeah. Now, the notoriety of Brown's raid energized his backers, the Secret Six, several of whom had started to wane in their enthusiasm for his cause. More money started to pour in, and Brown spent the rest of 1858 gradually moving a small force of men and a large stockpile of arms and ammo onto a small farm that he had rented in the outskirts of Harper's Ferry. The whole story of how they did this is rather fascinating. In Midnight Rising breaks it down in granular detail. I really recommend that book. Yeah, that book sounds really fucking cool. 
It is cool. Um, but the focus of our story today is the man John Brown and not the details of the attack on Harper's Ferry. The plan failed. Uh, Brown and his men succeeded in taking possession of the armory, but they held it for less than two days. Ironically, the first fatality of the raid was a freed black man who was shot in the dark on accident. It just was a big tragedy. John's uh, sons, Oliver and Watson, were killed during the fighting. Uh, and in fact, of the 19 men who went with Brown to Harper's Ferry, 10 were killed or fatally wounded. Four townspeople were also killed and more than a dozen militiamen and u.s marines were wounded uh, it's the marines who finally bring him down mm. uh, not the proudest moment in the marine corps history um Mm-mm. yeah now john brown was badly injured but taken alive and he survived long enough to stand trial he was obviously guilty by the laws of the time right. and the trial is mostly significant because it provided john with a chance to speak to the nation and justify his actions the speech he gave before being sentenced was considered by ralph waldo emerson to have been one of the greatest speeches in american history are and you I gonna would like read, to it? read it oh yeah oh yeah what accent I'm gonna are read you a selection do? from it now Had I inferred in the matter which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. The court acknowledged Acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. That teaches me that all things whatsoever that I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. I endeavored to act upon that instruction. I say, I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, and as I have always freely admitted I have done in behalf of his despised poor was not wrong but right now if it is deemed necessary that i should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked cruel and unjust enactments i submit so let it be done i mean fuck yeah lifetime there's your movie right there baby come on Mm -hmm. what the fuck it's a good speech that is a good fucking speech yeah, and I like what he points out that like, hey, if I'd done what I'd done for these poor black slaves, like to about like the children of any rich person in this country, I'd be held up as a hero. Like, yeah. you just don't give a fuck about these people or consider them human. Like, fuck you. He's, uh, it's a good speech. Yeah, I mean, yeah. talk about hashtag no filter, man. I love yeah. it. John Brown was executed by hanging on December second, eighteen fifty nine. There it is. His last words. Yep. His last words, written on a scrap of paper and handed to a jailer, were, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land can never be purged away but with blood. He would prove to be very right. The U.S. Civil War would start a little more than a year later. John Brown's raid was seen, by many at the time and by many historians today, as one of the primary sparks of that war. From the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Had John Brown's raid not occurred, it is very possible that the 1860 election would have been a regular two-party contest between anti-slavery Republicans and pro-slavery Democrats, says City University of New York historian David Reynolds, author of John Brown, Abolitionist. The Democrats would have probably won, since Lincoln received just 40% of the popular vote, around 1 million votes less than his three opponents. While the Democrats split over slavery, Republican candidates such as William Seward were tarnished by their association with abolitionists. Lincoln, at the time, was regarded as one of his party's more conservative options. 
John Brown was, in effect, a hammer that shattered Lincoln's opponents into fragments, says Reynolds. Because Brown helped to disrupt the party system, Lincoln was carried to victory, which in turn led 11 states to secede from the Union. This in turn led to the Civil War. Yeah. So, that's John Brown. So, do we think that his religion kind of influenced his no-fucks-given attitude because he essentially... Like no matter what he did on Earth as a as a living being, his fate was decided at birth. So, do you think that maybe his like no fucks given attitude towards like I'm gonna do risk it all, but also like like do you think that had some sort of influence on his ethos and you ideology as a human? I don't think he actually believed that aspect of Calvinism very strongly. Mm. I, I I get the feeling from him. Um, he doesn't act like a guy who thinks everyone around him is going to hell. Um, but I don't know. You know, I may be wrong on that. What I'll say, I think more than anything, the reason he acts the way he does is that he is absolutely convinced about everything that he believes, that he is 100% right. Yeah. Um, and that made him probably pretty insufferable to be around. It made He's him a, a horrible stubborn husband. stubborn bastard, horrible husband. Yeah. Not great father. Probably a very strange friend. But yeah. great abolitionist. <laughs> but but a great abolitionist and the man, the only white man who was willing to do the thing that was so clearly necessary at that point in time. Like, somebody needed to go into the South and just start fucking shooting yeah. people over this stuff. Like, that's what needed to happen. I mean, like, was... It's fucked up. Like, we don't want things to have to go that way, but that's what had to happen. Like He was the wokest white man of the 1800s, which is yep. mm-hmm. a compliment and an insult. Yeah, it's an insult to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a remarkable person. Um, and uh, you can see why people as varied as like abortion clinic bombers and Willem Spronson, who was, you know, outraged about yeah. uh, the deportations by ICE and the child concentration camps, why people like both of those people can see something in him inspirational. Um, yeah. And I, I, I go back and forth myself as to, like, what would John Brown be today? Because, um, like, obviously, if he'd been, like, a hardcore fundamentalist, you know, religious person, you might assume he would be one way. But I also kind of get the feeling of John that if he'd grown up in a different era, he might have been a fundamentalist of something else. Like, this is the kind of guy, it kind of depended on how he was raised. But whatever he was... Like, I don't know. Um, I think he, I think more than anything, because there were a lot of Calvinists who were slave-owning assholes. Like, there right. were a lot of, like, like religious people, like, like Bible-believing Christians in this period who used it as a justification for their slavery. So I think that while he was a fundamentalist religious man, the core of what John Brown was was a respecter of human dignity and freedom. Um, and his outrage at what was being done to blacks in America, um, I think he would be, I think the core of his personality, were he alive in a modern age, would be outrage at injustice rather than any particular religious ideology. I do feel that about him. Yeah. I mean, that seems... I'm not sure what he would have picked. Sorry. I mean, I feel like after hearing this entire thing, I feel like that is kind of a very accurate yeah. interpretation of him. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I mean very definitely heroic, definitely flawed. Definitely did mm-hmm. what was necessary and definitely was the only one to really do it in the way he did. Yep. Authentic. Yep. And 
as even you know you can be flawed but if you're the only one doing the thing that needs to be done that's all that really matters in the end yeah yep so that's john brown john effing brown John he would be really pissed at me (laughs) (laughs) using fuck so much in this episode celebrating him but Oh, yeah, he's the fuck police. I forgot. He's the fuck police. But he's also dead now, so fuck it. Like, he's not going to get angry at me. Yeah, and we didn't, and you know, we don't know where he ended up because. We don't know where he ended up. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Fucking John Brown. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Fucking John Brown. I like it. Sophie, you got any pluggables to plug? I really like this one show called Behind the Bastards, and I really like this other show called Worst Year Ever. And uh, if you haven't listened to it, it could happen here yet. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that listeners of this show would like Behind the Bastards or Worst Year Ever, but I guess they might. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have Instagram. Sophie underscore Ray underscore of underscore Sunshine. Lots of underscores. Yeah. Sophie Ray of Sunshine with underscores in between the words. I post pictures well, of Anderson. That's where you can find pictures of Anderson, and and you getting that, listeners, is my Christmas present to all of you. Yeah. Uh, I don't have Twitter because Robert has Twitter, and Robert doesn't have Instagram because I have Instagram. We, you, that's just how that works. Cool. Well, I love Twitter. I don't, but you can find me there. Uh, <laughs> that was I write okay. Yeah. Um, you can find me not on Instagram. Um, but you can find this podcast on Instagram or Twitter at at bastards pod. Um, you can find, you can find the answer to the question of what you need to do in our trying times. If you look into the stories of men like Raul Wallenberg and John Brown, and that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Um, so go hug a cat celebrate whatever holidays you do or don't celebrate or just celebrate the fact that most things are going to close down for a couple of days and we all have a chance to chill um and then come back in the next year ready to kick ass take names and seize harper's ferry and um don't have dreams about petting a raccoon yes but have many dreams about don't actually do not do not john brown will come back from the dead and kick your ass yeah, if you have but dreams I about petting a raccoon befriend a he squirrel hates that shit is what i'm trying yeah to befriend say. a squirrel befriend a squirrel don't dream about raccoons except the squirrel that tortures my dog that squirrel's an asshole yeah i, I think john brown would have hated that squirrel too yeah fuck that guy anyways happy uh whatever uh end of year uh yeah yeah go go have fun drink lots of eggnog i will yeah This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.